You're listening to Informed, informal chats about theological topics to help us know and understand God together. Informed. Informed. Hello everyone, Simeon here. Welcome to Informed. In this episode, I'm going to bring you a recording from the archive. So before Informed first appeared in the City Church podcast feed, back in autumn 2020, we were doing a teaching series on Paul's letter to the Philippians in the New Testament. And there's a passage at the start of Philippians chapter 2, which raises some interesting questions about the incarnation of Christ. So at the time, I sat down with Matt Fell on Zoom to pick his theological brains about the incarnation. And we put out a bonus podcast episode of our conversation. I thought this conversation was worth re-releasing as part of the informed catalogue. So here's Matt Fell. I love this passage very much. Um, In fact, Laura and I chose this as one of the main readings at our wedding. Um, And uh, not because we anticipated lots of arguments, uh, because chapter two of Philippians is addressing that, uh, but we love the picture of Jesus that it gives us. It's uh, it's one of the most beautiful passages. I think there's some really important issues raised by this passage and some things to work through. So it's it's a beautiful passage in what it reveals about God, but also it teaches us some really beautiful things about what Christ-like character looks like. Um, So I jumped at the opportunity to talk to you about this, Simeon. Great. I'm glad you jumped. Um, Why why don't you read us a bit of Philippians? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we'll begin to unpack... uh, some of the theological issues that it raises. Yeah, okay. Um, I think what I'll do, Simeon, is I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Um, because although we're really going to be dealing with verse 6 onwards, the context, I think, is very important. Yeah. Um, so let me give it a read. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Amen. Brilliant. I guess that's one of the more well-known passages in Philippians, isn't it? And there's a danger with more well-known bits that you kind of forget what the, the original context, why they're written in the first place. So what's Paul doing at this point in Philippians? Yeah, okay. So Paul uh, loves the church in Philippi. It's a very encouraging letter. 
Um, he was there for a very brief time, brief dramatic time that you can read about in Acts, um, and then had to move on. Um, and he's heard that the church is flourishing and doing well, uh, but there's some big characters there in Philippi. Um, and there seems to be some jostling, there seems to be uh, some disagreements and arguments happening within the church. And so he's writing to them to encourage them to love one another as Christ has loved them. Um, and I really love that expression when he says, have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's saying, no, guys, you, you know God in Jesus Christ. And everything you thought you knew about the world has been turned upside down. There's a new story. There's a new mindset that is yours if you know Jesus. Um, some translations will say, kind of will word it along the lines of follow Jesus' example. But I think the way Paul writes is a bit stronger. He's saying, no, you've been swept up in a different story, in a different way of viewing the world, uh, where you are to count others more significant than yourself. You are to strive for unity, to love one another, to be patient and kind and all these things. Um, and so that's the context uh, of Paul's kind of, what could, could look like a kind of theological aside. Uh, Paul's actually, he is making some very profound theological points, but in the context of this kind of broader ethical argument of how we are to live. Um, and people think that verse six onwards uh, was a hymn that the early churches would sing. And yeah. Paul is quoting this. Um, if I'm totally honest, I'm not sure why people think that. I'm not an, an expert in Greek, but I've heard it said so many times by people I respect um, that it sure thing. <laughs> the more I've studied this passage, the more I think it it makes me think of Mark's gospel a lot, actually. Right. We'll come to that in a bit. Very early on, the church were, were articulating and understanding and uh, living on the basis of the fact that, that Jesus was not just man, but was equal with the God he called Father. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, that is a very radical thing um, for a community of believers that are mostly Jewish or coming out of the Jewish background. Yeah. Because God is one. You know, that is... Deuteronomy, yeah. Like Deuteronomy 6. The, the Jews said it every day, uh, in, you know, in the Shema, the prayer, Hear, O Israel, Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, and so that was hammered into them. And it's a key part of their, their very identity that they know the one true God who is the creator of all things. The one, you know, who is not dependent upon anything. Revealed to Moses, you know, uh, at the base of Sinai in the burning bush, I am who I am. You know, or can be translated, I am, I, uh, I am what I am. I am, I will be what I will be. Hebrew to English does some, some fun gymnastics. Um, and so, they had this very strong notion that there is the one true God, the creator of all things, and there's only one of them. And yet this early Christian community include Jesus within the identity of God. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, sorry, I've I've gone, I've I've jumped into some some doctrinal <laughs> Trinity, Trinitarian stuff, Simeon. Yeah, so yeah, no. Hold me back down to Philippians two. <laughs> yeah, I, later on, I'd love to 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 pick you up on what you said about Mark's gospel because I think interesting. You say this reminds you of Mark because superficially, you might look at the gospels and think, well, there's not a lot of theology there. Um, you know, it's in the letters that you really get the theology um spelt out and, and and the gospels are just some stories of some things jesus did so it'd be great to kind of yeah. uh, draw you out on that a bit later so we're, we're going to talk about the incarnation about what what's going on when jesus ah I, i'm talking to you i feel like i have to choose my words extra carefully can i say <laughs> jesus becomes a human i don't know um you'll help us with that but we're looking i guess particularly at verse um, six and seven, yes? Yes. Yep. Um, yeah, so uh, you're looking at the, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Yeah, this is, this is the incarnation and what's going on there. Um, so I wonder if we should unpack some of the terms yeah things like form and emptied yes likeness yeah yeah okay so um there's two statements in verse six about jesus's relationship with god um which are very important and they overlap in what they communicate but they're slightly referring to different things so first off you have the statement he was in the form of god and then uh Jesus, it says that Jesus, you know, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So let me start off by talking about the equality with God there. I think that's probably, I know the text is at the way around, but it might be helpful for me just to, to go there. So like I said, the Jewish people had this very strong view that God is one. Um, and from that flows a, a, a bunch of stuff. So essentially God has, like, when I teach this on ID, there's two things, two illustrations that I, I use. One is God's CV. The, the Hebrew God has a unique CV that nobody else has. He is the creator of all things. Hmm. Um, and because he creates everything that is, he himself relies on nothing. He wasn't created. He's the only thing that is not created. Everything else is created by him. Um, and so he's eternal, he's outside of time. Um, and because he's the creator, he is the only one who is able to instruct his people how to live properly. He is the source of all righteousness and goodness. He's holy. It's the language that the Old Testament uses. Um, he's the only one who can save. Like, the gods of the other nations, they might be able to help out a little bit here and there. But this God, he's the one who can save completely because he's the creator. Um, he's the one who made the world to be good in the first place. And so when humans face problems like this unchangeable sinful nature within us or death, you know, the thing that stops all of us, the only one who has the power, the ability to save us is the god of the hebrews the god who is the creator so he has a unique cv and because of that he he alone is due the worship of his people that's why the old testament is so like you cannot worship other gods but what happens is uh 
the the Christians in, of, of the New Testament appear, uh, period understand that Jesus shares God's CV. Mm. He, you know, is the only one who saves. Uh, he saves by becoming like us, dying on the cross, and then resurrecting. Um, he's the one who they give their worship to. Um, yeah. And they're a little freaked out by this, but they kind of get on with it anyway, because <laughs> Jesus, Jesus doesn't stop them. In fact, he encourages us. But, you know, so at the end of John's gospel, Thomas, you know, after Jesus has appeared to him, you know, he, he falls down on the ground and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't kind of go, stop. You mustn't say that to me. Yeah. Jesus receives it. Um, and so the church were kind of freaked out by this, but they got on with it, um, worshipping Jesus. And they understood that Jesus shared God's CV. And so you find passages like in John's Gospel or, or Colossians uh, or Hebrews where they talk about Jesus creating the world. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, Jesus is included in the identity of God. Another way I teach this is I draw a circle on a whiteboard and I put all the things that God does in there. It says only God does the things inside this circle, and yet Jesus does these things. So Jesus is within the circle, shares the identity of God. Um, so, so that's the equality with God. Then. Yes. Yeah. So, so the church is confessing Jesus is equal with God, um, which means he shares God's nature. Um, he is divine. Um, yeah. The form of God. Uh, is a term that is obviously linked to God's nature, um, but has something to do with um, the appearance of God. Um, so think back to Exodus mm. and Mount Sinai when uh, Moses is up there um, and he says he wants to see God. And do you remember what, what God says to him? He says, you can't see me and live. Yeah. But then God makes his glory to pass before Moses. Moses, I think, says, show me your glory then. So God said, you can't see me and live. You can't see who I am, my nature. Right. But you can, but, so Moses then asks, well, can I just get a kind of a glimpse of your glory? And God says, okay, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. Um, and so there's this link that... Um, this, this idea of, of God's glory being the kind of the manifest appearance within creation. So think about the tabernacle when the tabernacle's built and the glory falls upon it. Um, you know, the tabernacle, a little tent in the wilderness, does not contain all of God. But God has made his, his presence to be intensely manifest there. Yeah. Or think about the temple in Jerusalem when, when, it, it, when it's built, so Solomon prays. And the glory of God falls upon it. And Solomon, he's got very good theology, wise chap. Um, you know, he prays, he says, highest heaven cannot contain you, God, but you said you're going to live here. You know, God is present everywhere. You know, Psalm 139 says, where can I go to get away from you? <laughs> I can't. You're everywhere, Lord. Um, highest heaven cannot contain God. God contains creation, not the other way around. And yet God will make his presence intensely experienced and felt. And that's his glory there. And so when Paul's talking about the form 
Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he's getting at this idea of God's glorious appearance. Okay. Um, so the, the Greek word is morphe. Uh, so if you think about uh, the morphe kind of appears in like a number of English words. So think about um, metamorphosis, changing shape. Mm. You know, morphe in, in Greek kind of has that, that meaning of shape, appearance, what it looks like. Um, so though he was in the form of God, though Jesus shares in the glory of God. And again, that's, that's a big statement because, you know, Isaiah uh, 42 says, I am the Lord, my glory I will not yield to another. Wow. Um, so Jesus shares the glory of God mm. because he is God. Mm. And so that means, you know, think about the picture in Revelation when you see God's throne, you know, it's glorious. And John struggles to find the language, you know, it's likeness of gold and sapphire and all these, mm. you know, wonderful em emeralds and it's bright and you can barely look at it. And so Jesus has that glory. Um, so we've got these two, two, expressions going on here so jesus is equal with god and he has the the form of god he shares god's glory um but it says that he does not count equality with god a thing to be grasped and the word grasped there which i enjoy saying with my slight northern accent yeah is like are you, are you sure it's not grasped no it's definitely definitely grasped um my poor daughter has this conundrum where her mother and her father pronounce things slightly differently. And so oh, I know. And she's at like learning to read age. So, and actually your way of pronouncing it is more consistent and logical, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, but she plays us off against each other. So, <laughs> so to me, she'll go, no, daddy, it's castle. And then to <laughs> Laura, she'll go, no, mommy, it's castle. Um, anyway, yeah. Equality of God not a thing to be grasped, to, to be seized, to cling on to with all his might. That would be like a good way to kind of okay. get the meaning there. So he, ha he is equal with God, but he doesn't cling on to that. He says he makes himself nothing, taking the, the, that word again, form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And so what Paul saying here is Jesus is going to that glory that he has in heaven, that shining brilliance, that majesty. Jesus is essentially going to empty himself of that by becoming a human being. So, you know, you can barely look at the glory of God, yeah. but, I'm, but a human being, I can very happily just look upon uh, yeah. As wonderful as you are, Simeon, <laughs> uh, you are not full of glory. <laughs> um, and so Paul saying Jesus is, is, he's not concerned. He has that glory because he is glorious as the son of God, but he's not, he doesn't have to hang, like cling on to it. Mm. He's going to exchange that. He's going to empty himself of that in taking the form of a human, uh, form of a servant, the likeness of human nature. And it's just, I'll come back to that again, that, the, the likeness in a second. Um, but that, but this, this kind of, this is what the, the language of emptying himself is getting at. Um, 
so strong language isn't it yeah it is empty i mean so the answer to this is is obvious but just to just to sort of press the point if he empties himself is he still god great question so um yes he is still god because the bible's emphatic that the divine nature isn't something that god can gain or lose if he could he wouldn't be god i know this is slightly mind-bending stuff yeah we you know we have to think that scripture reveals that god is the creator of all things and so although his creation reflects him in mm countless ways and even though there are parts of creation which particularly reflect god like human beings made in the image of god yeah god is ultimately beyond any created thing mm. and so he is beyond anything that we can grasp or compare him to we can yeah it, it, it's pretty mind-blowing stuff <laughs> Um, and so it, it means that our, our thinking about God has to has to bear that in mind. If we're going to do, you know, rigorous theology, it's a little bit like, you know, when you are, you're studying, you did physics, you know, you can't um, study, you know, atomic level physics like you study a, po a poem, you know, the subject matter dictates, shapes how you have to do your thinking. Right. And so with God, knowing that he is the, the creator of all things means that we have to apply certain approaches to how we think about him. Um, why am I saying that? I'm, I'm saying that to explain that statement that I made about for God to change or to, for God to lose his divinity would, would mean that he, he isn't God. Because everything... Everything that is in creation depends upon God, him being consistent, him being the one who upholds all things. So let me, let me throw some kind of scriptures which kind of can help make sense of this. Um, so you have the, the, the passage from Exodus 3 when God reveals his name to Moses, Yahweh. Um, he's, he's, he's communicating the literal translation of that is, I am who I am. Um, so God defines who he is nothing defines who he is um he's not shaped or conditioned or formed by anything beyond himself and we can't get our heads around that because everything we know is what it is because of where it came from Other you, things, yeah. you are who you are because of your parents and living yeah. in the parts of the world that you have done and being a part of human nature etc etc the bookcase behind you is you know what it is because it came from a tree and trees have certain properties etc etc but it came oh, from ikea oh yeah okay so it's definitely not a tree then um so god isn't defined by anything um except god mm. other passages which we could throw in malachi 3 uh god says to his people because i do not change you are not consumed or James that speaks of, of there being no shadow in God due to change. Yeah. 
So when Jesus says, oh, sorry, when Paul says that Jesus emptied himself, um, it sounds like you're saying we have to kind of be careful what we do and don't read into that. Yes. Yeah, so I'm saying because, because Jesus is one who is equal with God and because of how God has revealed himself to us in scripture, we know that divinity isn't something he can just lose. His, his divine nature isn't something he could, you know, slip on a banana and lose all of a sudden. Um, yeah. No one can take it from him because he, he doesn't receive it from anybody but himself. So that has, to con that has to inform how we understand this idea of him emptying himself. Mm. Just, a, just a, something I've just realised, in the translation I have, it says that he made himself nothing. Um, whereas NIV, NIV will have empty himself, and I'm not sure about other translations. Mm. Made himself nothing in the ESV is a little bit clunky. I think emptied himself is, is a better word. Uh, okay. is, a, is a more... Uh, is a, a more literal rendering of, of the idea of kenosis, which is the Greek word that mm. it comes from, which is an emptying or possibly pouring out. You know, you empty a, a bucket of water. It's mm. that kind of image. So we have to understand emptying in a, in, a, in a way that is appropriate to God. And so this, this, we do this all the time. This is actually sounds very abstract, but it's very common to us because you know, if I make a sentence, I saw it. So let me choose a sen sentence. I saw Simeon on his bike. He was flying. Mm. Okay? In that sentence, you've got the subject, Simeon. Yeah. And then you've got a couple of propositions. He was on his bike and he was flying. And you have to, you, it, when I say that sentence to you, you understand those propositions on his bike was flying in relationship to the subject we're discussing. Mm. So if, if I came home and said to Laura, I saw Simeon on his bike, he was flying. She knows that you don't have wings <laughs> and you, you weren't just doing a, you know, a flyby over the village of Lowe. Yeah, yeah <laughs> uh, ET style. Yeah, she knows that you were going very fast because, yeah. because her understanding of the subject of Simeon has shaped her interpretation of those propositions. Likewise, on his bike, she knows that you weren't, you know, kind of standing on your head on your bike. <laughs> yeah. Any kind of being on the bike, it, it, she knows that you, you know, a human being rides a bike. Yeah. Um, and so when we have this expression that Jesus, equal with God, emptied himself, or made himself nothing. We have to understand that in a qualified way because it, it can't mean that he lost his divine nature. Because, I mean, Hebrews says Jesus upholds the universe by the words of his power. So yeah. imagine how that would go if he lost his divine power. <laughs> like, the universe would just bloop, <laughs> you know, when the power gets taken on your TV and what happens to the screen. Um, so, yeah, so we have to understand the emptied in a, in a qualified way. And because Paul's given us these, these two terms, equality with God and the form of God, he's, he's giving us a clue here. Um, because what happens is Jesus 
though he was in the form of God, empties himself by taking the form of a servant. And so there's a parallel there. And so the term form, yeah, he talks about meaning appearance is doing a lot of work because so form of God, form of servant. And to go from one to the other is an emptying. Right. An emptying of his, his glorious appearance. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like, I mean, we, were, we use that word form in English sometimes in contrast to function, mm. form and function. I'm not sure it's quite the right parallel, but it's a similar idea to that. Yeah, um, I think there's something very similar to that going on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. Um, interestingly, um, you have... So he, he takes the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So it's very precise language being used here. So form, we've talked about this appearance um, and... So he takes the form of a servant by becoming, taking on the likeness of, of human nature. So it's not just an outward appearance of human nature. It doesn't just look like he's, you know, uh, appear yeah. like he's not just putting a human... Not like a hologram thing. Yeah, not a hologram or even like a, a skin suit. It's a horrible yeah. concept as that is. <laughs> um, it's... Uh, it's, he's actually taking on the likeness of human nature. Yeah, yeah. Um, and likeness, if you go back to Genesis, has quite a strong strong meaning in terms of, I mean, obviously that's written in Hebrew, um, mm. but like, I think that's, it's a good translation of what the Hebrew's trying to get at, that, you know, creatures produce according to their likeness. You know, it's, it's a nature thing. Mm. He's taking on human nature. Um, and he, he, really, he really is a human. Yeah. Um, and he really is God. Absolutely. I would take a bullet for that sentence, Simeon. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it really matters. Really, really matters. As a human being, as a human person, Jesus is able to share our plight. He joins us, you know, in our mortality, you know, in our suffering. Um, and Paul even says he joins us in the likeness of sinful nature. Mm. Now, Obviously, the New Testament is going to be very clear that Jesus is without sin. Yeah. Paul says that elsewhere. He, you know, who was without sin, and yet he has the he has the nature that on the cross he can become sin. You know, he shares with us, and of course, Jesus is tempted, isn't he? Yeah. So he, you know, he shares in the likeness of sinful nature, uh, and so as a human, he can do those things. As God, he's able to do something about it. So as a human, he can share in our plight. As yeah. God, he is able to do something about it. If in the incarnation there was any change to the divine nature or the human nature, we're in trouble. So if, if you know, uh, God becomes man and that results in some kind of super hit, Superman, you know, yeah. kind of thing, um, then he's not like us. Yeah. He doesn't share in our nature. He's not able to sympathise with us, so he's not as good a you know a mediator and saviour. Uh, but also, he's not able. He's not healing it. He's not entering in to heal it from the inside out. If 
in the process of the incarnation, he loses any of his divinity. If it's kind of squished or diminished in any way, then he's not able to help us because he's not, he's not got the full whack of his divine power behind it. And also there's all sorts of problems that he's, is he actually God if he can change? Yeah. So, you know, this can all sound a little bit like theological hair splitting, um, but it really is important because our salvation is resting upon it, that he's fully human and fully God. He's like us, but he's able to do something about the mess that we're in. And this conundrum drove three centuries of fierce debate amongst the church from the third, uh, the fourth, fifth and sixth century. Um, and, you know, Christians seeing the importance of this suffered and, and, and were killed for their faith on this. Mm. Um, my favorite is uh, one figure, I think in the sixth century called Maximus. He has the nickname Maximus the Confessor. He had his tongue cut off for insisting upon the importance of this stuff. Um, wow. And later, his, the church vindicated him, said, oops, yeah, um, <laughs> we might have made a mistake back there, Maximus. Oh, <laughs> wow. um, so, j just to try and... I think I can see why it's really important that, that Jesus is fully God. Um, could you just say a bit more about why, if he's going to rescue us, if he's going to be our saviour, why does he have to be fully human? Yeah, okay. So, <clears throat> there's a couple of ways of coming to this, and there's some, getting into some big old debates, which have ranged throughout the centuries. So this is how I, how I would understand it. Um, The, the full picture of the gospel, like the full good news, is that Jesus becomes like us to essentially make us like him. That's, that's how one theologian in the fourth century put it. Son of God became like us so that we might become like him. That he enters into our humanity which has fallen from the, from the glory it was made to be because of sin, because of death, because of the curse, because of all the ways that we've just been shaped by evil over the centuries, all the way that we've become self-centered and violent. Jesus comes to heal our humanity from the inside. And that, of course, involves dying in our place on the cross, taking, taking the wrath of God upon himself, forgiving us, but it also means giving us the gift of his Holy Spirit to transform us so that we might become like him. Now, obviously, we're not going to lose our human nature and become God. But as best we can, according to our capacity of human beings made in the image of God, Jesus comes to, to turn the volume up on us, to heal us, to restore us to what we were made to be. And in order to do that, he becomes like us. And of course, you know, God is all powerful. God could do what he wants. God could hit the big reset button in the sky. Yeah. But he chooses not to. He chooses to enter in. And in doing that, we learn so much. We learn about the, his love for creation, his care for it. He doesn't just kind of screw it up and throw it in the paper bin. You know, mm -hmm. 
He wants to restore the world that he made to be good. He cares about process, cares about, you know, how this, this world, this history, and he, so he enters into it and he, he shows us also, and this is what the Hebrew, uh, not Hebrews, the Philippians passage is really highlighting. He shows us his great love, his loving humility in doing that. He could just kept his feet up in heaven and hit the big reset button, but he, he, the son of God enters in um, to serve. He gets, you know, he comes down. I, I love that bit in John's gospel, John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And I often think that's a picture of the whole incarnation. So it says that he takes off his garments and lays them alongside. This is Jesus taking off his heavenly glory and splendor, the form of God, lays it to one side. And he comes out, he puts a towel around himself, like, you know, a very humble thing, our human nature. And he washes the disciples' feet. Oh, it's getting me. <laughs> like, this, this is... And, and they, there you have the, the theology of Philippians 2 played out in what looks like just a story of something Jesus did. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he, he was quite a nice guy. And look, here he is doing something quite nice. Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, like, think about other stories from the Gospels where... Jesus comes and he touches things which are unclean. Yeah. You know, which according to Levitical law, he shouldn't be doing. So I always think of the, the, the widow whose only son has died and Jesus sees yeah. the funeral possession. Oh, it's just this heartbreaking story. Yeah. And he walks into the crowd and goes to the body, shouldn't be touching it, mm-hmm. and he touches it. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, his cleanliness, his eternal life and power is conveyed to this dead body and the boy is restored to life. And that's a picture of the whole incarnation where God touches our humanity, like really takes hold of it. Wow. Wow. To heal it of our sin and our death, to bring it back to himself in loving embrace. Um, and yeah, he could have just hit the big button in the sky, you mm-hmm. know, or he could have just said, yeah, you're forgiven. And one day you'll come to heaven, but he steps in to heal it. And we see so much of his goodness. Like Moses say, let, you know, let your glory pass before me. And God says, I'll show you my, my goodness will pass before you in the incarnation. We see that goodness, like in the detail of a human life. Yeah. Pass before us. Wow. So, so in the incarnation and in, in acting that way in history, from what you're saying, God is doing something much more sophisticated, if I can use that word, and much more profound than dishing out a bunch of get out of hell free cards. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I'm a Protestant. I'd, you know, take a bullet for justification by faith, uh, you know, but if we only emphasise the get out of hell through cards, then we, we do lose this big picture of, of the gospel. Yeah. And of course, apart, yeah, and, and, uh, and also we kind of mess up our theology of the Holy Spirit because Jesus, you know, he, he comes, takes our human nature, lives, you know, his life, and then, like, by dying on the cross, raising again, you know, he, he does those things so he can send the Holy Spirit who continues his work of healing our human nature 
and making us like him. And so the spirit is then passed on to the disciples and continues that work of healing us and restoring us. Um, and so, you know, if salvation is just get out of hell free, you can, you, you know, you're now forgiven. It's probably best you go to church every Sunday and then one day you'll go be with Jesus. There's no role for the Holy Spirit. Right. But actually, if we really understand the incarnation um, as, you know, this transformation, this healing of us, um, the Spirit comes to continue that work and to mm, make us more interesting and okay. to glorify us and to do all sorts of wonderful and exciting things in and through us. Yeah, yeah, wow. We should we should start to think about coming into land. I'd love us to touch on these two more things, though, if we can. Yes. Um, I'd love to, to get you talking about um, where this might go wrong, because I think some people will be listening, thinking, yeah, yeah, tell me something I don't know. Um, so <laughs> we're going to point out where, where we might be in danger of getting this wrong. And, and secondly, I'd love to hear, I mean, you've touched on it already, but I'd love to hear how this jumps out of the textbook into your relationship with God and, and yeah okay how, you've obviously thought about this a lot how does it affect your walk with God but perhaps let's first talk about mm. um any sort of danger danger mm. warning signs we need to put up around this for for us here in Cambridge in, in 2020 okay so over the past 250 years of um church history there have been a number of quite influential theologians who have argued that um this emptying of jesus has more profound effects it's not just his ex his kind of exchanging his heavenly glory for the form of a servant <coughs> it is him losing his divine nature um, and just becoming a human being in terms of kind of uh hefty theology the response has been well the church always denied that but always read philippians 2 as i've described it to you um and actually and then and emphasizing this this fact that really our salvation depends upon the fact that in the incarnation jesus doesn't lose his divinity and hopefully everything you and i've just talked about has painted this picture of why that's so important that our yeah. listeners are going to be persuaded of that yeah and and, and a thousand a thousand years of church history could be wrong but there's got to be a really high bar for for coming to that conclusion absolutely absolutely yeah, yeah totally um and i just don't think it's high enough you know <laughs> yeah. um but every now and again um it kind of crops up or similar kind of ideas crop up um and sometimes it's a bit more insidious but sometimes it's with really good intention um and one recent place i've encountered this is in the teaching of bill johnson from bethel um, right so uh somebody brought this to my attention years ago actually and i had no idea how to think about it at the time um so in in johnson's book when heaven invades earth um, he talks about jesus completely setting aside his divine nature um now let me just kind of say before i, I go on uh i would i have a lot of respect for bethel and I've really benefited from some of their teaching in lots of ways mm. in terms of just their example of trusting in God and his promises, their emphasis that, you know, we have the Holy Spirit and God wants to do great things through us. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And I could sit at their feet and listen to that all day long. 
And I've learned wonderful things about them and other things. They've got some great, great stuff on communion, which has come out recently. Okay. So there's lots of stuff I really love about Bethel. Brilliant. Um, the reason Bill Johnson teaches that in that book um, is because what he wants to say is Jesus wasn't a superhuman. He wasn't like a kind of, yeah, Superman. He was a human being like us. And the things that he did, the miracles, the healing, the exorcisms, signs and wonders, we can do them mm -hmm. too because Jesus became like us. And we have the same Holy Spirit. So Johnson's incarnational theology, his Christology, there works that Jesus loses his divinity, but he has the Holy Spirit to empower him to do these things. And, and, and so he's saying, he's really trying to emphasize, Jesus is just like you. Yeah. So you can do the things that Jesus did. And I love that. I really want to kind of say, yes, <laughs> yes, we can do the things that Jesus did. But I don't think it requires us to jettison his divine nature in the incarnation. And I think if we do, yeah. we've run a really risky line of actually the, the, you know, if he's not divine, he can't heal us of what he's not healing us from the inside out. Mm. You know, so us, us humanity, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. He's not healing our humanity. He's not saving us from the inside out. Um, and so I think there's a lot at stake in that. Mm. Um, that is... Sorry, go on, Simon. Well, I was just going to say, let, let me press you on that, because I can imagine some people wanting to say, it's fine for you with your PhD splitting your theological hairs. Um, does it really matter whether, whether I get my theology of the incarnation right, as long as I'm getting on and, and doing the stuff that, that God's yeah. telling me to do? I mean, to some degree, it doesn't matter. <laughs> to some degree, God is gracious and you don't have to have a PhD in theology before he's going to answer your prayers and come move in power in your life. Yeah. Um, so to that degree, uh, you know, it's don't, don't, I don't want anybody to listen to this and be like, oh, <laughs> I'm awful because I've got bad theology. <laughs> yeah. um, but I do think it does matter. I do think it, um, it leads to some 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 big effects down the line i think often okay. theological things like this which seem very tiny it's a little bit like a ship sailing across an ocean and one degree of being off its like chartered line you end up in a very you know you end up in like south america rather than yeah. in, in new york um and so i do think there are some consequences down the line so what would they be i think um like you, you said, this idea that, you know, in the incarnation, God is coming into our human nature to, to save it from the inside, has this kind of big, sophisticated view of salvation. And I think you lose a bit of that. Mm. I think you lose a perspective on how God relates to the world. The fact that in Jesus, the fullness of divinity can exist, which is what Paul says, teaches you a lot about how the the created world relates to god wow and the importance of human nature our destiny and all those things mm -hmm. i also think and, and this kind of brings us back to the point of philippians 2 is it is it teaches us about divine humility mm -hmm. um that in the incarnation it really is god taking on human nature 
um, and setting aside his glory to become like us gives us this wonderful picture of, of how Jesus doesn't need to hold on to his divine nature, um, like his, his divine glory, sorry. He, he, can't, he, he can't but hold on to his divine nature. He doesn't need to hold on to the splendor and majesty of that. He's yeah. willing to become a servant. And those things aren't incompatible. Yeah. Like divine glory and humble serving nature mm. like god they, is they both exist they both exist in jesus at the same time absolutely yes yeah god is just as happy with you know pillars of clower uh, pillars of, of fire shining lights choirs of angels as he is with kneeling down and washing the feet of his disciples mm. both reflect who he is equally and and you know you can't have one without the other you mm. can't just have a theology of glory you have to have a theology of of well it's the theology of the cross yeah. ultimately yeah but this is god's wisdom you know and actually bethel know this because they, they write that wonderful song this is jesus in his glory son of god dying for me yeah it strikes me that that you're saying something very profound about who God is when you say that it is God with that towel around his waist. It is God on that cross. It is God in that manger. Yep. Um, not just not just someone who was once God. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And so it does matter. So I, I want to affirm Bill Johnson's motivation for his Christology. You know, I said about you know, Jesus is like us, therefore we can do the things like him. Absolutely. But you don't need to jettison, you know, a, a good incarnational, an orthodox incarnational theology to get there. And in doing so, you lose a lot. Yeah. And, and what you just said about, like, the power of saying it is Jesus washing, it is God washing the feet of the disciples there, kind of leads me on to how this is... Yeah shapes me and my walk with God because my goodness what a picture of humility and that's how Paul uses this theology in Philippians yeah the you know the, the content context is about getting the church to count others as more significant than themselves and that is what God has done he's you know he rather than holding on to that that splendor that majesty he demonstrates how he how much he loves us by taking on that servant form you know in human nature and and so it teaches me that that's what christ-like love looks like and it shows me what humility looks like uh, and this has been this is a big thing for me and it's redefined how I understand humility because I think I always used to think about humility as being humble is like realizing your weaknesses and being honest about that. So it's a negative thing. I defined it negatively. Like, you know, like that was a humbling experience. <laughs> I learned how unintelligent I am or like <laughs> yeah, how unathletic or whatever, you know, or, because of an experience, I had to eat humble pie. That's how we often use 
humility in terms of I realize my limit. Mm. But God has no limit. And yet he demonstrates humility here. And so humility isn't just a kind of recognizing your limit. It's a positive thing. It can be a positive thing. A, A setting aside of your glory, your status, in order to serve the other, in order to love them, to bless them, to count them as more important than you. And and that's huge. It's huge for your marriage. It's huge for your parenting. It's huge for your witness to other people. You know, gosh, how regularly am I tempted to think my busy routine or my work, you know, is more significant than others. And even if, say it is, even if, Say, you know, uh, my work that I have to do that day, you know, is probably on the surface level more important than, you know, building a tower with Rowan (laughs) downstairs. Actually, this teaches me to count him as more significant than myself. Mm. Um, And so it it has effect in all sorts of areas of life. And and one one thing which I've, I've really tried to apply this in is in my life at the university, you know, I'm doing my PhD at Cambridge University. Uh, I don't think in my 33 years I've ever experienced such kind of uh, status and profile and, you know, the kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the, I guess the glass, the the gloss, yeah, the gloss of it all. Kudos. Kudos, there we go, yeah. And I, you know, I'm constantly at these like, seminars and lectures with very intelligent people and afterwards we all go and have tea and coffee and it's all about you know which lecturer are you talking to or what intelligent conversation are you a part of Mm. and it was thinking about philippians 2 a while back made me think you know what when i'm there i need to look for the person who's struggling in that room and count them as more significant than furthering my academic reputation and i need to go make them feel like they're at home there um, because they're very intimidating contexts. Yeah, yeah. So that that's just an example for me recently. That's amazing. And it's very challenging. Like obviously, I you know get that wrong <laughs> a lot. It's a huge shift in thinking, but it is have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Yeah. Wow. Wow, that's brilliant. Thank you so much, Matt. Um, been great to chat these things through. Perhaps we, should, perhaps we should um, let Paul or the hymn he quotes have, have the last word, shall we? Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he'd come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.